This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, Everything Perishes Except His Face. Recorded July 18, 1999, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. The Quran says, Everything perishes except his face, meaning the face of Allah. And this is a teaching about impermanence. Everything perishes except the face of Allah. And this is one of the most fundamental teachings you'll find in all mystical traditions. Here, for instance, is the great Taoist Chang Su. He says, the way is without beginning or end, but things have their life and death. You cannot rely upon their fulfillment. The life of things is a gallop, a headlong dash. With every moment they alter, with every moment they shift. Is this true? Is everything impermanent? Can, can anybody think of anything that is permanent? Last forever. It's interesting because this is not a very mysterious teaching. Uh, it's actually quite obvious to us. There's nothing mystical about this particular teaching. But uh, it sounds very depressing. So people don't like to think about it, the impermanence of everything. So one of our problems in deluded condition is that we ignore the impermanence of things. Literally, we just don't pay any attention to it. But mystics constantly point this out to us. Everything is impermanent. Everything is changing. Everything is shifting. And they're not doing it to depress us. They're doing it because they're trying to point to a truth that is absolutely vital to our happiness. If we are ever going to find true abiding happiness, we have to recognize the impermanence of things. Here's what Anandamayamai says. Everything in this world is transitory, so also worldly happiness. It comes, and the next moment it is gone. If permanent abiding happiness is to be found, that which is eternal will have to be realized. So she's just, again, pointing out something that, if we stop to think about it, is perfectly clear. All our pleasures and worldly goods, all our sense of security, whatever it is that gives us happiness that depends on anything is going to, of necessity, be impermanent because the things are impermanent. This is why Jesus said, Do not store up treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy them and where burglars break in and steal them, but store up your treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys them, and where burglars do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there also will your heart be. If we set our hearts on impermanent things, we're going to be very disappointed. They're going to rust away, they're going to corrode, they're going to be stolen. And so we are always going to have our hearts broken. But if you set your heart on the treasures of heaven, they don't corrode, they don't rust, they can't be stolen. 
What these mystics are pointing to, really, is that the immediate cause of our suffering is our attachment to impermanent things. And it happens to all of us. It's just part of our desperation to become happy. We don't know where true happiness lies, and so whatever comes along that makes us feel good, we latch on to it. We want to hang on to that. And impermanent things here does not mean just physical things. People, friends, family, lovers. We can lose them through death, or we can lose them just because our relationship changes. You know, I think everybody's had a friend they had a falling out with, and you lose them as a friend. Our emotions, this is something we don't usually think about. One of the major sources of our happiness, we believe, is feeling good. So if we have nice emotions, calm emotions, joyful emotions, and so forth, we want to hang on to those. We become attached to them. And we don't like, generally, uh, feelings of distress, of anger, anxiety, worry. We want to get rid of those. But emotions are transitory. Emotions are impermanent. The very word emotion comes from a root that means to move. They're moving all the time. So this is a major cause of our suffering. We're always trying to get back to that feeling, emotional feeling of happiness. We're always trying to get rid of worry or distress or anxiety and so forth. And we can't do it. It's always changing. So we're shifting. Emotions are going like the weather. Some days it's stormy, some days it's clear. Ideas. This is an interesting thing. We get very attached to ideas. And then the world doesn't conform to our ideas. And that causes a lot of distress. And we rarely realize that we are clinging on to an idea, attached to an idea. We rarely realize that that is the source of our suffering in that situation. Because our ideas are naturally true and right and good. And other people's ideas are, you know... <laughs> screwed and, and so when the world isn't working out according to our ideas we get very very frustrated we never look at our idea and see that maybe we are clinging to something that itself is actually ultimately impermanent because if you look back on what your ideas were when you were 15 they've changed quite a bit haven't they your ideas about the world Usually the world has to force us to change our ideas. We, we change kicking and screaming. We finally admit, all right, I'll give that up. <laughs> but ideas change. Ideas about the past and the future cause us a lot of suffering. We cling to images of the past, memories of the past that are gone. And all we have is an echo. All we have is a shadow. And oh, but if only I could go back then. It was so wonderful then. There are people who generate tremendous suffering in their lives. Thinking about the past relationship, the past glory. You know, it's almost a cliche. The 
sports jock who remembers his high school days. And as he gets older and starts getting bald and losing his teeth, you know, there are the pictures up on the mantelpiece of winning the trophy or whatever. And then the future. We cling to ideas about the future, how we imagine the future is going to be. And then the future isn't like that. And that causes us suffering. So when we talk about things, we're not just talking about possessions. We're talking about all phenomena, people, ideas, emotions, all the phenomena that appear and arise in our consciousness, all that is impermanent. So all traditions recommend that we do two things. First of all, that we start practicing detachment from worldly things, from phenomena. Here's what the great Hindu saint Mirabai says. Give up faith in the world. Mira is the slave of courtly Krishna. She has adopted the path of simple detachment. And you'll find this echoed in all traditions. The Buddha said, avoid attachment to both what is pleasant and what is unpleasant. Losing the pleasant causes grief. Dwelling on the unpleasant also causes grief. Very good advice. Meister Eckhart, the great Christian mystic, praised attachment as the best of all virtues. The best of all virtues. And then the second recommendation is that we seek that which is eternal, that which is permanent, that which is not transitory, does not fade. We have already heard Ananda Moyamaya say, if you're going to find true abiding happiness, you have to find that which is eternal. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about all this other stuff. He has long passages about that. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to put on, what you're going to drink, you know. All that's ephemeral. Seek first the kingdom of God. Go for what's important. Here's what Gendon Rinpoche, a Tibetan Buddhist, says. If we think carefully about the unsatisfactory nature of ordinary worldly existence, we will recognize that it is characterized by suffering. We should therefore aim directly at Buddhahood and turn our minds away from worldly values. This is the exact same thing that Jesus was teaching. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about these worldly values. So where is then Buddhahood or the kingdom of God? Well, all traditions say it is within us. That's what Jesus' answer. The kingdom of God is within you. The Quran says Allah is nearer to you than your own jugular vein. So for Allah to be nearer to you than your own jugular vein is to say Allah is nearer to you than your own life, your own physical bodily life. Here's uh, another Tibetan Buddhist, Lama Shabkar, and he's talking about a Buddhist disciple. He may comb the three dimensions of the microscopic world systems for an eternity, but he will not find so much as the name of the Buddha other than the one in his own heart. Same teaching, all these traditions. Allah, God, the kingdom of God is somehow at the core of our being. Now, as a result of these two instructions, 
seekers start trying to practice detachment and seeking the ultimate reality, that which is eternal. And they start usually in this way. They start trying to practice detachment by denying their desires for things <coughs> like food, sex, creature comforts, all that stuff. So you're walking down the street and you pass the Baskin Robbins, a little whiff of hot fudge comes through and the little desire arises and you say, no, I'm going to practice detachment and you march on. <laughs> and then the seekers usually start looking for God, for the ultimate reality, in deep meditative states. So they take up a meditation practice, they try to shut out the world, they start saying mantras, and they go in. Oh, and they find their states of calm and clarity and bliss. This is all true. You will find these wonderful states. States in which you'll have experiences, joyful experiences, experiences of peace you've probably never had before in your life. You probably did not even know were available. It's very exciting once you tap into those. But when we practice like this, that's when the trouble begins. And the reason we get into trouble is because our deluded minds interpret these teachings dualistically. We assume that impermanence is something bad and that it's the opposite of God, Buddha mind, whatever, which is good. So then the aim of the practice becomes to escape the world of impermanence and to find that other world that is eternal and imperishable and so forth. So do you see why I say this is a dualistic way of viewing this? We, in our minds, set up a cosmic duality. One is good and one is bad. Impermanence is bad, permanence is good. And this results in a very ascetic attitude of practice. And many seekers get into a big battle with themselves trying to practice detachment. And it's uh, well known in mystical traditions. It's called spiritual warfare or spiritual combat. I even gave a talk on it not too long ago. And this is something that's almost inevitable, at least to some degree, for most seekers. And then they try to maintain these states that they experience in meditation. So they get into a deep, calm, clear, blissful, meditative state. And they think, ah, oh, now if I could just hold on to this, this is it. And then they quietly get up from their pillow. And they start walking around the house. And they try to greet all the creatures around them this way. Oh, there's the dog. Orf, ruff. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, oh. Yes, yes, I'll keep this calm state. They walk into the kitchen. There's their spouse saying, What's the matter with you? You didn't do the dishes last night. Look at them piled up here. I can't live this way with a slob like you. Yes, 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 I got to hang on to that state. <laughs> it doesn't work. I think some of you may have tried this. <laughs> Those states are impermanent. Those meditative states themselves are impermanent. And when we practice like this, you know, every time a little desire for a hot fudge Sunday comes along, beat it down and try to hang on to those clear, blissful states, we find we can't do it. 
And the poor seeker starts to suffer more than they ever suffered before. The spiritual path becomes like a path to hell. <laughs> now, you know, to point this out, that this is a dualistic approach to a spiritual path, is all well and good. But the truth of the matter, as I said before, really, most people have to go through this. Some people go through it for a long time and very heavily. And there's, there's a value in going through it. Eventually, you'll exhaust it. Eventually, you will come to your own realization, this is futile, this does not work. And then you will be brought to a point of surrender. But no one said that impermanence is bad. What's bad is to look to impermanent things for our happiness. And the only reason it's bad is because it leads to suffering. It's not like cosmically bad or evil. It's just a law of this world. So the teaching of impermanence is not meant to turn us away from the world of impermanence. It's meant to turn us away from overvaluing it. From treating it as though it were permanent and we could find abiding happiness in the world of impermanence. And truly speaking, you can save yourself perhaps a lot of difficulties on a spiritual path if you get this early. And then if you understand that this constant teaching about impermanence, instead of hearing it and trying to rush away from it, you start to realize that the teaching is to get you to actually look at the impermanence of the world closely, to really examine it. This is why the Quran says, in the alteration of night and day and all that Allah has created in the heavens and the earth, there are signs for the wise. In this whole cosmos of alterations, of impermanence, of things shifting and moving, if you are wise, there are signs here. It means something. It's got something to tell you, so to speak. There's something to learn from it. The Buddha said, staying alert to the perishability of all the elements that are temporary, you are the knower of the indestructible. That's interesting. There's nothing here about getting away from impermanence. It is actually staying alert to impermanence. And somehow through staying alert to impermanence, you'll come to know what is permanent, indestructible. So let us take a closer look. It's not enough to understand that all things are impermanent intellectually. We all know that. Everybody knows that. Spiritual seekers know that. Worldly people know that. The only difference is worldly people don't even imagine there could be anything else. So they adopt an attitude, well, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I mean, we've got to make the best of life, you know. It's sort of a compromised attitude towards life. So... We all know everything's impermanent, but we don't know it in our bones. We don't know it in our flesh. We don't experience it that way. So, let's see what sort of experiments we could do. For example... Sound is impermanent. 
the sound of my voice is impermanent. I'm going on babbling here for a long time, but each word I speak is impermanent. It may seem like a solid river of babble to you, but if you listen carefully, you hear different sounds arising and passing. In this room, you hear little shifts. The whole realm of sound is constantly shifting. The sound field is probably one of the best to start looking at because it is so obviously experientially impermanent. In fact, if we get a sound in our environment that is more or less permanent, like a leaf blower blowing, (laughs) we get very irritated. And actually, if you listen to a leaf blower blowing, it sounds like a solid sound. We want to say, shut that damn thing off. But if you listen carefully, it's it's all vibrations. Very, very fast. It gives you the sense that it's a solid sound, but it's not if you listen carefully. Sound itself is vibration, and if we really listen carefully, we can hear it. We can hear it in the ringing of a gong. Now, let me ask you something. I rang the gong once, and now I just rang the gong again. Is that the same ring or a different ring? Does this seem obvious? Different. Different. Okay. I mean, in some sense, you know, if we had a guitar here, uh, and I played a note like a C, and then I played it again, you could say, well, it's the same note. What we really mean is it's so similar that it's almost the same note, right? But it's not actually the same note. There was one note we played, and it arose, and it disappeared, and then we played another note. And we identify it with a name because of the similarity between the two notes. So we say, oh, that's C again. Yes, that's the same note. A musician might say very well, oh, yes, that's the same note. But the sameness is in our idea of the similarity of the two notes. It's, it's not in the notes. Each note is here and Uh, gone, right? Now, let's touch something other than yourself. Touch the floor if you're sitting on the floor or your chair and feel the sensation, the the sensation of touch. It's actually better to do it with just one finger. You'll get just one sensation. Now, pick your finger up. Now, the sensation's gone, isn't it? We, all day long, are touching things, getting sensations, and we tend to think of our bodies as solid sorts of things. But when we watch closely, all the sensations of our bodies are constantly shifting and impermanent. (coughs) Touch the floor again. And then lift up. Is that the same sensation or a different one? Different, right? Again, sometimes we think, you know, I'm touching the floor. It's the same floor. And we have this idea of some permanence here. But our experience is always impermanent. 
There's not one sensation of floor. Our experience of floor is many sensations. Coming one after another. If you walk across the floor, oh, tom, 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 you walk across the floor, you don't notice. But if you do walking meditation, which is a particularly Buddhist, very formal style of meditation, where you pick one foot up, you slowly move it, you set it down on the floor, you feel the sensation under the foot, and then you pick the other foot up, move it through the air, you start to get a very good sense of the impermanence of sensation. See, we're talking now not just about, oh yeah, everything's impermanent. We're talking about the moment-to-moment experience of impermanence here. Do you understand what I'm driving at? We don't have anything to taste around here, but you could imagine the same thing with the taste of, say, a strawberry. You take a taste of the strawberry, and it's one taste. You eat that, and then you take another bite, another taste, another taste. It's very interesting to examine foods, the taste of foods. The difference between bland foods and spicy foods is that the taste of the spice lasts on your tongue longer. And in some ways, it's more satisfying if you aren't turned off by your tongue burning. (laughs) (laughs) Because if you're eating a bland food, like a little oatmeal, you have to eat very rapidly to keep that taste in your mouth. But if you take a, a bite of nice, uh, spicy curry, ooh, it just lingers and lingers and lingers around. It's very interesting to watch yourself eat something that you particularly like. Let's go back to the hot fudge sundae. Observe that you take a bite of the hot fudge sundae and you, you know, chew it, or you don't really chew hot fudge sundaes. What do you do? Swish it around in your mouth. What? Yeah, let it melt sort of in your mouth and start to swallow it. And you watch the minute the taste starts to fade, your hand is going back for another one and another one to to keep it going. See, to keep the illusion and that little satisfaction you're getting from all this impermanent stuff just to keep it going. And then if you quit prematurely, it's very difficult. That hand wants to go get that going again. (laughs) so you usually sit there and stuff yourself until you I don't want anymore and that's even impermanent isn't it even the pleasures that we get out of these things are impermanent the same would be with smell you know you could try it with uh, a whiff of I don't know a rose a fragrance one whiff oh oh yeah that smells beautiful oh yeah You see, when we do a fast, they think there's one thing here, the smell of the rose. But if you really experience, there are three things here. Oh, one, two, three. And each one is impermanent. You see what I'm driving at? Now, this is the hardest one of all. Look for a moment at whatever is in your visual field. Now, close your eyes. Now, open your eyes. Let's do a couple more times. Close your eyes. Now open your eyes. Close your eyes. Open your eyes. Each visual sensation is impermanent. 
saying we're different. Different. It, this really fools us. We think we're seeing the same thing. We blink and we look at, oh, it's, everything's right there. But our experience is, no, our experience is impermanence. We turn our heads to the right. Go ahead, turn your head. Oh, the whole different thing in my visual experience. And to the left, as we walk around the house or down a street, constantly changing, shifting our experience. Is everybody getting this? This is what mystics are trying to get us to look at, not run away from. Trying to get us to actually experience. This is one of the main purposes of meditation, particularly in the Buddhist tradition. Slow everything down so you can actually experience what the world is. Not how you'd like it to be, not what you think it is, not what you've been taught it is, but what is your actual experience of the world. So, by all means, practice meditation, but carry that mindfulness into your everyday life. Don't, uh, don't try to carry off your pillow a certain state that you generated in your meditation, but carry the mindfulness of whatever is going on into your life. When we become mindful like this, I mean really mindful, and you have to make an effort, not just in meditation, during the course of the day to remember, to really look, to really observe. Oh, stop for a moment. You don't even have to stop. You just have to stop your mind for a moment. It's really what you have to stop and observe. Our actual experience of the world starts to change. We start to experience the world more realistically. And that means more fluidly. It becomes like a dance or a composition of music. And actually... If we continue with that, we start to see the true beauty of the world lies in its impermanence. If everything were solid and permanent, everything in this world, it would be like taking a snapshot and that's it. <laughs> And no, no matter where you were, the most beautiful snapshot in the world you could ever take, after a while you get bored looking at it. Mike takes wonderful pictures. He's a photographer. But I guarantee you, if I took his best picture, or you, it's the best picture, you pick the ones most appealing to you, and you sit down and put it on a wall and start looking at it, oh, for a while you may get more and more out of it. You know, an hour or two, you can sit in a museum and watch a you know, great work of art. Two hours, three hours day, two days, three days? I mean, how long is it going to, you know? And you're going to say, well, come on now. What else you got to show me, Mike? So, actually, impermanence is not bad. Impermanence is beautiful. And we can discover this in our lives. But there's more. Because impermanence is the major clue to the true nature of all phenomena. Here's what Longchenpa says. He is a great Tibetan Buddhist. In the forest, by the example of dead leaves, come to realize that the body, youth, and senses 
change gradually and do not possess any true essence. By the example of empty lotus ponds, come to realize that various objects of desire, wealth and prosperity, are finally going to change, that there is no true essence in them. By the example of the arising of reflections in ponds, come to realize that the various phenomena appear but have no true existence. They are like illusions, a mirage, a water moon, and are certain to be empty of true existence. Now notice, he's not telling you to turn away from the world. In fact, he's saying take nature as a teacher. Observe nature closely. But what does this mean when he says these things are empty of true existence or true essence? Anybody got any idea? Nothing's permanent. That's right. Nothing is permanent. But is there anything behind the appearances? Let's examine this. When we hear a sound... What do you think is the cause of that sound? Air vibrating. Who said air vibrating? Right. Have you ever seen air vibrating? Mm -hmm. You have? Yeah, on LSD. What? <laughs> on LSD? I think you saw your mind vibrating. <laughs> How many people would say air vibrating? Have you ever seen air vibrating? Yes. Where? Smoke chamber. In a smoke chamber. Ah, so in the smoke chamber you saw what molecules of? I saw particulate matter. Move. Excuse me. I saw particulate matter move. Particulate matter move. Yes. Now, actually, did you see that? You see, I can. He's he's got a scientific background. Uh, <laughs> or or did all you see was photons hitting your eyes that had bounced off? I received photons. You received photons. So you didn't actually see the air. Vibrate. All you saw was really. I got the perception of air movement. Right, but all you really saw was photons. I mean, that was actually all that ever touched your eyes. No moving air ever touched your eyes. Now, did you ever actually see photons? No. No. Interesting. These are ideas that we construct about what is behind the appearances, right? And so nobody denies there aren't ideas behind appearances, but have we ever experienced a thing behind the appearance? You see what I'm driving at? Now, our ideas, as we noticed before, are impermanent. They shift. So uh, your ideas today about what causes sound to vibrate may, may hold through the course of your whole lifetime. But historically, they've changed a lot. And uh, the ideas that we hang on today, we are so sure of, scientific ideas, of course, in two, three hundred years, will all be changed, as we saw in this century. People used to explain, in the last century, this phenomena that when I let go of this gong striker, it falls to the floor by a force, magnetic force called gravity. It wasn't magnetic, but like magnet, that pulled this down to the floor, right? That was the 19th century idea of 
what was behind, the thing behind this phenomena, gravity. Then Einstein came along and he said, no, there is no force. Why this gong striker falls to the floor is because it's just following the natural curve of space. Like when you uh, roll a ball over some rough terrain, the ball just follows the terrain. There's no force called gravity in Einstein's theory of relativity. We use the same term so it deceives us. He still calls it gravity, but it's a totally different idea behind it. Nowadays, they're working on an idea that there are gravitrons. I can't explain that one to you. <laughs> that, that's not uh, completely accepted, but it's a certainly very respectable scientific uh, theory at the present time. So in one century, we've changed our ideas of what's behind the phenomenon, in this particular case, three times. Scientific ideas now, not just some superstitious things, supposedly. You still get it yet? We don't experience anything but the phenomena. We experience sound. We think a lot, and so we experience a lot of ideas about the phenomena, but we don't experience anything behind it. We've never experienced anything behind it. Nobody's experienced anything behind it. So this is why Longchenpa says, although not really existing, things still appear. From their own side, however, such things are void by their nature. In other words, the sound is an appearance. It is appearance in consciousness. And that's all our experience of it ever is. We don't experience something objectively out there that it is an appearance of. I don't know what you're talking about. You don't? Okay. <laughs> Not that last part. You, you lost me there until I'm sorry. It, the, the, the most common analogy in mystical traditions is like it's like a dream. We see things in dreams, right? Do you see things in your dreams? Mm -hmm. Right? And in your dream, you take it to have some objective existence apart from the dreaming mind, right? It appears to be reality in the dream. Right. That's our common way of saying it, exactly. So, Nate, do you remember something recently you've seen in a dream? No. No. All right. <laughs> Maybe you saw a, a, a dragon in a dream. Let's pick something that's obvious, right? In the dream, there's a fire-breathing dragon. In the dream, you uh, are terrified that this is going to eat you up. Or maybe it's a nice dragon, and so you're delighted and awed and so forth to be in the presence of this dragon. But in any case, when you wake up, you realize, oh, it's just a dream. There was nothing behind the appearance. The appearance was void of any essence apart from the dreaming mind. Mm -hmm. Does that, that help? Mm -hmm. Does everybody begin to follow this? This is not just a Buddhist idea. Although the Buddhists give tremendous emphasis and stress to this. Here's the great Jewish Kabbalist, Abraham Abulafia. All is imagination, like a dream which passes by in the night, which when the sleeper awakes from it, thus shall he find it. And even when he looks at the day past, he will see that all his days are like a passing shadow. Look at yesterday. Where is yesterday? Where is it? 
Was there ever anything behind it solid? So the impermanence of things is starting to give us a clue that maybe there ain't anything there. Or let me put the, the, the stress in a different place. Maybe there ain't anything there. Here's what the great Christian uh, John Scotus Erigina wrote. For all things which vary according to place and time, in other words, which are impermanent, and which are subject to the corporal senses, should not themselves be regarded as truly substantial existence, but as transitory images. He sounds like Longchenpa, doesn't he? Here's Ibn Arabi, the great Sufi that I mentioned earlier. The cosmos is but a fantasy without any real existence, which is another meaning of the imagination. That is to say, you imagine that the cosmos is something separate and self-sufficient, while in truth it is not so. These people sound like Buddhists, a Christian, a Muslim. This is why when I say at the center, you know, that all mystics point to the same truth, have all realized the same truth. It's not just some general wooey, we're all sort of one and everything's nice. <laughs> I would bet you a hundred bucks that John Scotus Erigina never read the Buddha or any Buddhist works. John Scotus Erigina, Erigina means out of Ireland. He was a 10th century Christian mystic who came out of Ireland. John the Scot. And in the 10th century, there was, uh, it was the height of the Dark Ages. There was no trade with the East and stuff. I'm sure he never heard of the Buddha. But he discovered this. Once we begin to understand, not just understand intellectually, to experience the impermanence of phenomena and the emptiness of the phenomena, there's no need for all this inner warfare. Detachment comes very easily and naturally. We actually experience everything as impermanent, and so we naturally don't try to grasp it. We start to get a glimpse and taste of this emptiness, and so we don't try to hang on to it. There's nothing there to hang on to. We don't try to grab rainbows. We appreciate rainbows for what they are. But you don't run out and say, oh, there's a rainbow, Jennifer. Quick, get my lasso. Saddle up. I'm going to go get it. <laughs> we see a mirage on the desert, but you don't try to drink the water there. There's no problem with it. You see, once you have an experiential understanding of the world, naturally, that grasping starts to lessen. Still, when most people hear this teaching about emptiness, everything is empty and impermanent, it still sounds kind of grim. And in fact, sometimes when people get their first experiential glimpse of emptiness in a meditation practice, let's say, or even just walking down the street, it can cause some anxiety. It can cause fear, the fear of emptiness. There's a famous story that I've told before often, but it's worth repeating, about Tsongkhapa, a great Buddhist 
teacher, and he had a room full of advanced students who had heard the teaching of emptiness many, many times, and he was giving it again. And in the back of the room, one of his students grabbed his pillow like this. And Sankapa looked at him and says, now you're getting it. The sign that he was getting it was fear. I mean, being startled. I mean, oh my gosh, everything's empty. But the truth is, there's a flip side to emptiness. The bad news we could say is that everything is empty. The good news is that everything is empty. (laughs) Emptiness is not a mere vacuity. It's not like a physical vacuum. In Buddhism, emptiness is the nature of the Dharmakaya. The Dharmakaya is the ultimate nature of reality. But that nature is full of the potentiality of this whole cosmos, which is the radiance of that primordial awareness. That's how they put it. It is the compassionate radiance of that primordial awareness, that Buddha mind or Buddha nature. For Sufis, the true nature of everything is God, Allah. Ibn Arabi says, there is nothing in existence save God, his names, and his acts. See, our idea that the cosmos is self-sufficient existing is a fantasy, as he said. The only thing that exists is God. In other words, God is the true nature, the essence of everything. But God is empty of thingness. Because he goes on to say, he is not accompanied by thingness, nor do we ascribe it to him. So the essence of everything is God. But God sounds like a positive term. But God is not a thing. God is nothing, no thing. But not, again, like a vacuum, because all this is the manifestation of God. In fact, the Sufis talk about it as the divine self-disclosure of God how all the unmanifest possibilities, infinite possibilities in this consciousness come to be known, come to be manifested. That is what the cosmos is. Here's the Christian Dionysius the Arapagate. He goes back to the 8th century. He says, the ultimate is within our intellects, souls and bodies, in heaven, on earth. And whilst remaining the same in itself, It is at once in, around, and above the world, super-celestial, super-essential, a sun, a star, fire, water, spirit, dew, cloud, stone, rock, all that is, yet it is nothing. Now we're getting to the mystery of mysticism. The point about this is the emptiness, from a mystic's point of view, is God. That is Allah, that is Brahman, that is the ultimate reality. And it's full of the power to manifest all this as appearance, not as things. So the more you experience, or let me put it this way, the more you pay attention to the impermanence of phenomena really closely in your life, the more you will start to taste, to experience, the glimpse, the emptiness of phenomena, the more that phenomena becomes transparent to the divine. 
That is reality for mystics. That is God for mystics, not some being up in the sky looking down on you. Right here, present, imminent in all this. Touchable, literally, seeable, in the sense you see that appearance is the divine. That's why Meister Eckhart says, everything stands for God and you see only God in all the world. You don't know it, but that's what you're seeing now. You want to see God. Where is God? You don't have to go into some deep inner meditative state to see God. You can't get away from God. Literally. This is why the Quran says, whithersoever you turn, there is the face of God. Same thing as Meister Eckhart, right? Anandamoyamai says, wherever my glance falls, there Krishna appears. Look, 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 tall Krishna. Isn't that an interesting look? There's the Quran, Meister Eckhart, Christian, Anandamoya, my Hindu. I mean, they, if I didn't tell you who was saying these, you wouldn't know the difference. I mean, it's almost literally word for word. Of course, Buddhists don't have an idea of Krishna or God or whatever, but listen to Wang Po, great Zen master. That which is before you is it, in all its fullness, utterly complete. There is naught besides. From a mystic's point of view, there is nothing negative about impermanence. Indeed, impermanence is the gateway to emptiness, and emptiness is the gateway to ultimate reality. So if you are trying to run away from this impermanent world, you are making a big mistake. So by all means, practice detachment. Practicing detachment does not mean fighting with your desires. It simply means recognizing that whatever you desire and whatever you get is not going to bring you ultimate happiness. If you like hot fudge sundaes, go have a hot fudge sundae. But stop dreaming about a paradise in which you'll have hot fudge sundaes and then you'll be happy. That's what true detachment means. Detachment means being able to let it go. If you want a hot fudge Sunday and there are no Baskin and Robbins around and you're particular about your hot fudge Sundays, well, you just let it go. And you let the desire arise and go. There's nothing wrong with the desire arising. Desire won't stay around forever. It may stay around for a while, but so what? It's just desire. It's just impermanent. It's empty. When you start to recognize that, it's just very natural to let these things go. The Baskin Robbins is there, and you got the time, and you got the money, you know, stop in and have one. It doesn't matter. But then pay attention to all the little pleasures you get eating it. They're all impermanent and ultimately empty. You learn from having a, a hot fudge Sunday or not having a hot fudge Sunday. Either way, you're going to learn something if you're paying attention to impermanence. You see what I'm talking about? Practice meditation, but not as an escape from the world. You practice meditation to become mindful. We train our minds single-pointedly on an object so that they won't be constantly distracted by thought, so that we have a spacious, mindful quality that we can take into the world. And it becomes rather effortless. It's spontaneous. If you go around thinking, I've got to watch impermanence, I've got to watch impermanence all the time, you're never going to see anything. It's a training of the mind. 
In the process, whenever you focus single-pointedly on anything, and if you continue, you will start falling into states, other states. And they're wonderful, too, and that's great. But they're all impermanent. Don't practice in order to get into some state and stay there or, or try to hang on to a state. Just recognize this is impermanent as well. Let it go. Instead of rejecting the world, accept the world as your teacher. The whole world, the cosmos, is here as your teacher. This is a big difference between mystics and ascetics. Here's what uh, Longchenpa wrote. And he's speaking now from the point of view of primordial awareness. I, the creativity of the universe, arise as the teacher in five forms of pure and total presence. Those five forms, I mentioned this last week, they're the elements, earth, air, wind, water, fire. In, in the Tibetan cosmology, everything's made up of these five fundamental elements. So I, the creativity of the universe, arise as the teacher in five forms of pure and total presence. Their dimension is the full richness of being. Their message is conveyed through their form. The teacher teaches its own nature. The five forms of the state of pure and total presence show everything to be the truth itself. Let me go through that one more time. I, the creativity of the universe, this is emptiness. The creativity of emptiness here. Arise as the teacher in the five forms of pure and total presence. That is earth, air, wind, and fire, and anything made up of earth, air, wind, and fire. Their dimension is the full richness of being. In that cosmology, everything is earth, air, wind, or fire, or space. That's the five, right? Air and wind are the same. Thank you. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Let's get this right here. Earth. Wind, fire, water, space. There we go. Everything is made up of those five, right? So that is the, the full richness of being. Their message is conveyed through their form. The impermanence of the form. The message is here. The message is right here. It's not, and it doesn't mean that if you listen hard enough, you're going to hear a message. This is the message. The presentation of this is the message. The presentation of every form in the cosmos is saying, See, I'm God. You get it? Oh, you didn't get that? Okay. See, I'll turn this around. I'll appear again. Now I'm God. You see? Oh, you didn't get it? Okay. I'll do it again. And God's endlessly creative. Until you get it, it goes on and on. The teacher teaches its own nature. What is there to teach? The true teaching isn't about how to get something or, or whatever. The true teaching is the nature of what you are seeing, what is appearing what you are experiencing, which is God. That is the only thing ultimately really worth learning. Quote, the five forms of the state of pure and total presence show everything to be the truth itself. This is the truth. This is the truth. This is the truth. This one opposed that. It's what's here before you. Totally complete. There is naught besides that. So, again, the purpose of my talking this way is not to fill your minds full of ideas, but to get you to look and to practice yourselves. Because it does no good if your minds are just full of ideas about impermanence. The only way your 
experience is transformed is through experience. And that is the only way you ultimately realize these wonderful, mysterious truths that the mystics talk about. So I hope you take it in that spirit, and I hope you at least come away from this with a curiosity about re-looking at your experience and perhaps a different attitude about impermanence and what that means. Instead of turning away from it or feeling it's a bad thing, this is your Ariadne thread. This is what leads you through the whole maze to the ultimate center. So, any questions or comments? I've struggled quite a bit in my life with this feeling of right livelihood and being feeling motivated properly and having a direction that has some significance on a level beyond myself. But I see all kinds of crud around me at the same time and people feeling just as valid for that existing or, or the way that they take responsibility for that. And it just doesn't seem like it quite fits somehow. And of course, I'm influenced more by what I have studied and a lot of what I have studied connects nicely with, with what I get out of here. Um, but some of it gets away from how you actually pursue your life in this existence versus the ultimate existence. Well, let me put it this way. We've talked about one half of emptiness. We've talked about the emptiness of things. The other half, and it's not dualistic, it's, it's the two sides of the same coin, is the impermanence of self and ultimately the emptiness of self. There is no separate I, ego, entity. There is no student actually learning from any teacher. You see, the divine is within you and without you. Jesus said, uh, the kingdom of God is within you. And then in the Gospel of Thomas, he says, the kingdom of God is spread upon the earth and men do not see it. This whole uh, a line between subject and object, I and other, itself is empty, imaginary. So the question of right livelihood and of how to live has more to do with that other side of the coin. And it has to do with this. If you start living your life selflessly, then you will start to experience the emptiness of self and you will get to the exact same place but you're coming from a different direction. And if you start to live your life selflessly, you are simply living truth because the truth is there is no self, individual separate self. So the way to realize reality is to live it. And as you bring your life more in conformity to reality, you find the happiness inherent in that selfless condition. And the only thing that you have to struggle with in that situation is duality. In all these situations, you're struggling with duality. But you see, what I'm trying to get at it in this talk, it's better not to think of it as a struggle. You may have to. A lot of people do, and that's fine. You go through that struggle, and you get to the point where you realize that struggle itself has self in it, and is perpetuating self. You, you take that as a springboard for humility, and you let go. And so you let go of this idea that you're going to be a saint, that you're going to be right livelihood, and you just simply start doing the best you can in every moment. And you start just trying to act more out of love and compassion. And you start to notice, oh, 
this is arising, this is selfish, this is self-centered. And when you notice it, again, that's the key here, pay attention is the first principle, then you can just sort of let it go. So right livelihood grows out of that practice because then you look at what I'm doing and I want to do something that's more contributing to the good of the whole and so forth. But it, it, it begins with this business of living selflessly. The, the Tao Te Ching has several passages about this. The Lao Tzu describes the way. The way creates all the myriad creatures. It nourishes them. It claims no merit. It claims no credit. It doesn't ask anything in return. And so the sage helps the myriad creatures, benefits the myriad creatures, uh, asks for no credit, claims nothing in return. You're just acting in conformity with reality. If you, if you act unrealistically, you're bound to suffer in this world. And at least that's a clear direction. Right. And that's very important. Simone Weil said, love is a direction. And if you don't realize that, you will fall into despair the minute things start going wrong. Love isn't about generating a lot of nice, gushy emotions. It's a direction. And as long as you're following that direction, you're okay. Some days you'll feel loving, some days you won't. That's not so important. I had a little experience um, recently. I went to a Buddhist meditation um, just the other night, and um, I've always done breath meditation. Um, I w- we were asked to do insight meditation. Mm-hmm. It was the end of the day, and I'd been on the computer all day. So my neck was calling for attention. So I began noticing the pain in my neck. Um, And as I noticed it, it kept changing. And it was just very amazing to me. um, Because normally I've I've sort of scanned the body and noticed pain in different parts. But I haven't stayed with pain. Before and it was just constantly changing. It was like I was chasing it, you know. It was here and then it was gone and then it was over there. And I, I thought it might go away, but it just kept changing for 30 minutes, you know. And this again, you see, often when we do go look at things directly, they do go away because we find actually we've been holding on to them by our, our trying to run away. It's like trying to run away from your shadow or something. You know, and the faster you run, the faster it runs after you. And the minute you stop, it stops chasing you. But we shouldn't be practicing for that. And what you got out of this was perfect. You got some insight into the true, impermanent, ever-shifting nature of even something like pain, which seems so when we have it, you know, we got to get rid of this, right? So if you start practicing in order to get rid of it, then you are again getting sucked into this duality here. But when you start practicing simply with that curiosity, what is really going on without any expectation one way or the other, then that is when you have the greatest opportunity for insight. And that insight meditation that the Buddhists do is one of the best ways to do that. And if you train your mind first in some concentration, you can do insight meditation much more effectively because your mind has been trained not to follow your thoughts all the time. And then you keep with that. That meditation is exactly designed to show you the impermanence of everything and then ultimately the emptiness of the phenomena. 
Yes, Ellie. Well, this is what keeps coming up for me. I get the passing of phenomena and impermanence and so on. And I'm sitting on a material or physical object which is still supporting my body. I haven't fallen to the floor. Where do these kinds of things fit into what you've been talking about this morning? I don't know where to go with that. Now... You just My said you're theory. sitting on a physical material thing. Yeah, physical okay. or material, now, whatever category you want. Right. What do you actually know about what you're sitting on right now in your experience? What is there? There's support. Well, is there's a sensation? Um, sensation? Yes, I guess so. In your bottom, right? Yes. And maybe in your legs or your feet? Yes. Okay. So there's some sensation, mm-hmm. right? Are you experiencing anything else besides that sensation? I mean, in relation to what you're calling a chair and this and that. Well, there seems to be a substance or hardness to it. Ah. Okay. Here, would you pass Ellie this gong? Yeah. Okay. I'm holding a clock here. You're holding the gong, right? In your palm now. Is there a substance or hardness in that gong? Yes. Okay. Like a weight? Yes. Okay. Does the weight belong to your hand or to the gong? They each have a weight. Actually, do you feel two things? Do you feel two sensations or is there just one sensation? <laughs> I think there are two. The hand and the gong. You think, but experience. Are there really two sensations here? It seems that way to me. Okay. So the weight belongs to the gong, Mm -hmm. right? Now, supposing, uh, we don't have one here, but supposing I had a, a, a fork or a knife or something, you could see this, I've got a pen here and I balance it very gingerly on my thumb. I feel weight, and the weight would belong to the fork or the knife. Mm -hmm. Now, supposing I started putting a little bit more pressure, a little bit more pressure until I felt pain. Where would the pain belong? To the finger or to the (laughs) knife? To the finger. Right. How come? I mean, what's the difference between pain, the sensation of pain, and the sensation of weight? Why does one belong to the finger and one belong to the gong? You're starting with the assumption that these things are there. And what I'm trying to get you to explore is maybe that isn't the case. Maybe, for instance, when you're just holding the gong, there's only one sensation. And the mind projects onto that sensation of duality. And says, well, there must be a gong and there must be a hand. And so part of the sensation must belong to the gong and part to the hand. Right? Yes. But what I'm suggesting, if you just experience without thinking about it, you come to see there's only one sensation. And when you see there's only one sensation, whether it's a sensation of pressure, or whether it's a sensation of pain, or whether it's a sensation of softness or hardness, it's just different forms of sensation. We, by convention, assign the sensation one way or another. But that is not built into the nature of the sensation. 
one of the things about this insight meditation she was talking about, this is what you're trained to try to seek. Then when you're sitting on a chair, you feel a sensation. The mind says, oh, there must be something under there supporting me. But that's, that's imagination. That's thinking. That's not the, the actual feeling. When you look, you see a visual appearance, mm-hmm. and there's a correlation between this visual appearance and this sensation under your buttocks. But still, when you examine your experience very closely, there's nothing permanent there. You know, you look up and that'll be gone. The visual sensation will be gone. You look back and it'll be there or another one will be there. You'll stand up and then you sit back down and that sensation will go and then another one comes. All this is just ever-shifting and permanent phenomena. Our minds, our thoughts organize this and assign cause and effect and come up with ideas about what must be behind them and why they must be this way. And that's fine. No mystic's ever saying, don't do that. Just don't be fooled. Those are all imaginations. Those are all thinking. And then you see even those thoughts will change over time. Mm -hmm. You'll come up with different explanations. You're never going to come up with a true right explanation because thoughts are all impermanent. So wherever you try to grasp and hang on to something solid in that sense, you know, you don't really find anything. You just find impermanence, shifting sights, sounds, thoughts, pace, whatever, emotions, feelings. And this is what, when you actually start to experience, say, oh, this is really the way the world is, then it's not that you don't have thoughts or can't figure things out, but you recognize that this is the mind thinking now, and these thoughts are all impermanent, you see? Is that helpful at all? Yeah, a little bit. Thank you. I had a question about the the fear aspect. Uh Uh, You mentioned that story of the the Zen monk who grabbed his pillow. Tibetan, but yes. And when Ellie was talking, something about what she said, you know, if you, the experience of realizing the nothingness of the chair that you're sitting on, just the whole nothingness thing, I've seen people go into deep fear reactions and when they hit particular states of awareness like this. And how common would you say that is on the spiritual path? I remember reading about uh, Andrea's Gnostic moment there, and I think she mentioned feeling like she was losing her mind or you know, disorientation. Yeah. So is it a common thing, or is it? Uh, I mean. What are the statistics? I would, I, I don't have any statistics, but I would say, and I think most mystics would agree, that if you have not experienced some fear or anxiety or whatever on a spiritual path, then it's not really affecting you. You're not really getting anywhere. Because that's the sign that, oh, you're really experiencing reality different than you thought it was. Most people when reality is shown to be different than what they thought it was, what they've relied on and counted on all their lives, will naturally experience some fear. So it's a very, very common thing, and it's valued. Like, if you read through the mystics, uh, the fear of God is one of the things that you want to be able to experience. Now, for a mystic, the fear of God is not the fear that God's big daddy in the sky is going to punish you. The fear of God is the awe of getting a sense of the presence of God. Do you see what I mean? 
which is quite a different thing here. And the energy in that fear itself can be very valuable. Do you know the story of Ramana Maharshi? Uh, not much about his life. He was a 15-year-old Indian boy. He came home one day, and he suddenly had this realization that he was going to die. And it, he actually thought he might be dying right there. There was nothing physically wrong with him, but it just hit him. Now, he was filled with fear. Most people, if that happened, you'd be on the phone to a friend, to a doctor, get me some Valium, do you know what I mean? <laughs> Let's get rid of this. So he said, no, I'm going to find out what this death is all about. So he lay down on the floor, he made his body stiff like rigor mortis, and in his mind, he went through the whole death experience. And he said, fear drove my mind inward. And in about, I don't know what the length of time there was, what, five minutes, he did his whole spiritual path and attained enlightenment. It's one of the great, great mystics of this century. Now, it's very interesting because people read that story and they don't pay attention to the details. The fear of death, which is the fear of emptiness, you know, par excellence. I mean, that is why we're afraid of death. It looks empty. Uh, that grabbed them. And instead of running away from that, instead of trying to get away from that, he went into it. He used the very energy of that fear and turned inward into it and said, I'm going to get to the bottom of emptiness. Well, in principle, it's the same thing we've been talking about all morning. You start with a little impermanence, do you know what I mean? Instead of trying to make your world solid and, and, you know, stave off the inevitable and stuff like that, you turn into the impermanence, then you find the emptiness. And then you, you'll experience some fear, but then turn into that, you see? Now, if most people are not like Ramana Maharshi, only because when they do experience the fear, it's not something you can will, your instinct is to jump back, you know? And so people usually have to approach those places, you know, several times and play around. And then when you see that on the other side of the fear is beauty, ah, well, then it's easy to walk through that gate and you go up to the next gate, you know. For each individual, it's different. And it's useless to compare yourself to other people. But it's also that there are common milestones that mystics experience on a spiritual path. Even though each person's path is, in a certain sense, unique, this is why we can compare tradition to tradition. We can talk about stages. We can talk about common sorts of experiences and states and so forth. And fear is one of the most common ones. And it's valuable to know that because when it happens to you, then it helps you not automatically assume you're going nuts. And you say, oh, well, now that's the Buddhists talk about this, the fear of emptiness. The, the Christians talk about the fear of God and, you know, you can, you can say, oh, well, now I've arrived here, you see, and there's a little bit more spaciousness around that that can be very helpful. Real good, thanks. It has been a long morning, so let's bring the formal part of it to a close. And as Mike said, you're welcome to stay and have some tea and chat, check out the library, and until we see you again, peace to you all.